If you are able, I would encourage you to rise as we read God's Word together from Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14. Hear the reading of God's Word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we ask that you would take this word and carry it to the hearts and the lives of those people gathered here today. And so by your power, by your strength, by your work, would you mold and shape lives because of your truth. Show us yourself this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, before we start, as you can probably tell, I'm dealing with a little bit of a head cold, so just bear with the nasally sounds this morning. Um, it's, I'll, I'll work through it, but uh, I just I appreciate your grace in that. But uh, today, uh, I'll be preaching a sermon that is from a, a little ways ago, and to be honest, it was kind of fun. I went back, and uh, Christmas weeks are often busy, and so pastors often do what they can to to try to be efficient, right? We can talk about efficiency of what does this look like, and so I'm not going to write two brand new sermons, but go back in the archives and see what we can find. And so I was doing that this week, and I found this sermon, and I thought it was, it was interesting, and it fits well with today, the day after Christmas. And it's one that I preached in my ordination. Some of you have gone to Presbytery before, and uh, you preach a sermon, and you have to preach before the body of of, of teaching, teaching elders and ruling elders, and they determine whether or not you're acceptable as a preacher. And uh, so this is the one I preached, and, and I, I noticed that it wasn't the best sermon that I ever preached. Um, so I made some adjustments. I think it's a little bit better now. But I'm just going to be honest with you, this is, this is not original to this week, but it's one from the past. But uh, it, it's, it's, it's timely. So, with that little bit of introduction, I thank you for your grace and your patience uh, with head colds. So, but the presents have been opened, haven't they? We've celebrated the birth of Jesus, and we're on the other side of the greatest birthday in human history. However, this morning there may be a bit of a letdown. I woke up this morning, and there were no more presents under the tree. The kids weren't ready to go asking, can we open presents yet? None of that happened today. It was a different kind of morning. It wasn't like yesterday morning. It may have been a little bit harder to get out of bed today than it was yesterday. But the question is posed to us. It's posed to us well. We just celebrated a wonderful birthday. Now what? Now what do we do? How do, we, how do we go about our lives? Because today is a bit of a letdown. I think that Paul instructs Titus in that very real and practical question. Paul's writing to Titus, who is a young man, a church planter with a young congregation. And Titus is asking a lot of the same questions. I'm not really sure what to do. I'm not really sure how to do this thing called being a pastor or how to, how to pastor a church plant. And, I, and what does this look like, Paul? You, you, you are my mentor and you are my guide. And Give me some answers. Give me some, give me some feedback here. Just tell me, what, what do I have to do? What do we have to do? Basically asking, now what? What do we do? 
So Paul instructs this young man, Titus. But before he tells us and tells Titus what it is that we're to do, he tells Titus and he tells that church and he tells this church why it is we do the things we do. When we see passages in the Bibles where instruction is given, we always must recognize, and you've heard me say this before, but it remains true, that whenever instruction is given, something always comes before the instruction. Grace is always given prior to instruction. This is just the pattern by which God speaks to his people, how he communicates to his people. You think about even the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. I took you out of bondage. I took you out of slavery. And now because of that, I showed you grace. Yes, I saved you from this slavery, brought you to myself. Now here are some things to help you do well in the land, to help you flourish. Grace, a list of things to do. And so this pattern is true here in Titus 2 also. This is There's something to do, but there's also grace given. And so as we come to this text, as we see, this pattern exists again. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Just a bit of note about bringing salvation for all people. We must remember the context into which Paul is speaking. The context is first century. Christians and Gentiles alike are mostly the audience. The Jews of the day felt that they had the the corner on the market of God. After all, they were his chosen people. But they failed to realize that they had not succeeded in the next part of the deal. God had given them grace, but they did not fulfill their portion of the deal. They did not go into the nations and proclaim in the name of the Lord as their Savior. They failed to realize that even as far back as Genesis 12, as God's promise to Abraham that they were to be a blessing to the nations. But the Messiah has now come. And he has fulfilled the promise to Abraham through the Messiah. The Messiah Messiah Jesus came and died and rose again in order that the nations would have and know and experience salvation. This grace is the appearance of the Messiah. Jesus took on flesh Jesus lived and died and rose again. This is grace. This is why we do the things that we do. It's this act of God becoming man that is a tremendous act of grace. God did not have to send his son to take on flesh. He did not have to do this for us. But in his love and in his grace and in his mercy, he did send his son to a disobedient and rebellious creation. This is what he did, and this is what we know as amazing grace. The kind of grace that boggles our mind, and yet it is true nonetheless. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that this grace is the best present that we've ever received. This is a gift, and it's a free gift, just like the ones we opened yesterday. There is no greater gift that God can give than the provision of his Son. It's this grace that governs then everything about us. Or at least it should govern everything about us. If this grace is true in our lives, if that's really the case for us here and now, it should shape how we live. It should shape how we talk. It should shape how we act. It should shape how we love and learn 
to help us understand this a little bit more, I want us to go back to when we were in grammar school. Maybe in second grade, I was sitting in Mrs. Meyer's class. That was my teacher in second grade. I still remember her, a wonderful lady. But Mrs. Meyer taught me something, along with some other English teachers in my own family, that in a very simple English sentence, for it to be a complete sentence, what do you need? You need a subject, and you need a verb, and you need a period at the end of the sentence, right? Very easy, simple kind of things. Subject, verb, period. Spot, ran, period. That's a complete sentence in the English language. Easy and simple. However, Paul does not normally use easy, simple English sentences. Paul likes to go on and on and on and on. And in Greek, that's a little bit more difficult than English because it's just structured differently. But, nonetheless, this is a sentence that Paul writes to Titus. And if we look at it as simply as what we can, there is a subject and there is a verb and there is a period. So let's look at that for just a second. In Titus 2, 11 to 14, we notice that this is indeed one of those long sentences that Paul provides for us in his letters. So just like our teacher told us to do in the second grade or whenever it was that you learned how to do English sentences, we need to find the subject. The subject of this sentence is grace. Grace is what drives this entire passage. It's grace that governs everything that then follows after what he says. God has given us grace through the birth of Jesus. Grace is now what? In the flesh. It's not something that's out there somewhere. This, this non-distinct thing that's in the ether. Grace took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. The question then that comes back again to us is, okay, so what? Or now what? We've received this grace, and we just celebrated that this fact, this reality, now what? Grace has appeared, now what? Paul tells us that we are to respond. We're to respond in two ways, according to Paul's letter to Titus. Because this grace has appeared, you're to do a couple things. We are to respond to God's grace in action. We're to do something. We're also to respond in anticipation. So because this grace has come, because Jesus has took on flesh, we have a responsibility then to respond. To respond in action and to respond in anticipation. So let's look at these two things, this action and this anticipation. In verse 12, it points us towards the type of action that we are to take. It's interesting to point out that the Christian life, we're never to stand still, are we? As a matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 3, we're told that either be hot or cold, don't be lukewarm. If, if you're going to be for me, be for me. If you're going to be against me, be against me. But, but don't be somewhere in this lukewarm middle. You'll just be spit out. But what is, so what is that saying? It's We can't just be lackadaisical or complacent. Where there's, there's something that has to take place. Be hot, be cold, do something. We're always to be moving somewhere, somehow. Because someone that is lukewarm would just simply be spit out. There's constant movement in the Christian life. Never are we to be stagnant in our relationship with Jesus. Yet how many of us are, even today? 
Paul affirms this notion by telling us that grace has appeared. And what is this grace doing? This grace is training us. Wait, what? Now, when I think of the word training, I don't think of it as a set at entry lifestyle, right? When I think of training, I don't think, well, I'm going to go sit on my couch and just eat and drink all day. That's, well, you might be training for something, but not the kind of training that I think of when we're training. But what do you do when you train? I and a couple other guys had been training to, to run the Cowtown Marathon in a couple months, but uh, circumstances have probably allowed us not to be able to do that. We're going to have to pare our expectations down a bit. But uh, when you train for a marathon, you can't just sit on the couch. You actually have to get out and you have to run, and you have to run a lot. And in my case, I ran too much and I got hurt, and now I have to realize that I'm an old man and I have to have some realistic expectations. But you work. You work hard, and you sweat, and sometimes you fail, and sometimes you succeed, but there's always motion, right? There's, you're doing something. The body is constantly doing something when you're training. So here, grace is training us. It's telling us to be moving, to, to be doing something. But training doesn't mean you get it right all the time. There are going to be times when, when you do succeed, but there are going to be times when you fail. I don't think this passage is telling us that as soon as you recognize grace that has been provided to you, that now all of a sudden you can just put it on coast and everything is good. Or that you necessarily have all the tools to succeed. No, that's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is that we have the tools now to deny and to denounce the things of the world. This is the action that we're supposed to take, according to Paul. This is what he's telling this young pastor in a church planting situation. Because grace is here, deny the worldly passions. Deny the things that the world is telling you that are right and good and true and the things that are going to give you fulfillment and satisfaction. So now that we have a glimpse of a portion of this action, another question that comes to mind is is maybe some of you are thinking this as well is, well, I'm I'm not really quite sure what what, what are the things I'm supposed to deny or to renounce. What are these things? Someone asked me to do something uh, a few weeks ago that I, that I thought was a bit of an odd question. They asked me to take a, a bit of a look at my, my heart and my life and, and, to, and to see something about myself. I thought he was prying a little bit too deep, a little bit too deep for comfort. But looking back, I realized that it was an important exercise to say what are the things in my life that are hindering a relationship between me and Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. Can can I just pry a little bit and, and poke a little bit? What are the things in your life that slow you down from a relationship in Jesus Christ? What are the things that are causing you to, to not have that kind of relationship or, or to recognize the grace that's been given to you? What are those things? Think about one thing in your life, maybe, that's keeping you from this good relationship with the Lord. Though Maybe it's the one sin in your life that continually tears at your soul. Paul calls it a thorn in his flesh. We may call it whatever we want to call it. But if you're like me, you quickly realize, well, 
There's a lot more than one thing probably that's causing me not to have a very good relationship with my Savior. There's probably multiple things, or there are multiple things that are causing a barrier. And these things play a significant role in my relationship or lack thereof with my Savior. For some of us, that means that we long for power and control, and and that's the thing that stands between me and my Savior. You see, because Jesus tells us to submit to him, doesn't he? All things. Submit our hearts, our lives, our souls, our finances, our time, our resources, everything. to Submit to him. But we really like to be in control of things. We really like to manipulate our situation to make sure everything is tidy and right and good and nothing bad's going to happen. We want to be the God, whether it's a big G or a little G, of our own little worlds. We want to be the God of our marriage, the God of our family, the God of our company, the God of our relationships. But Jesus says, submit. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That doesn't look like control. That doesn't look like manipulation. Our desire for power and control consumes us and drives us away from God. This text then tells us that may be one thing we are to deny. Where the world says you should be in control. You should be powerful. You should be wealthy. You should be all these things because that's what makes you who you are. This text says we are to deny those things. To renounce the idol of power and control. To give the power and control to God. To love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But for some of us, it's not power and control either, is it? Some of it's our time. For some of us, our idol and our God or the thing that moves us away from the Lord is just simply time. Time grips and dominates our lives. We're coming out of an extremely busy season, aren't we? And maybe we now, just now, we have the opportunity to sit down and say, wow. I don't even know where the last three or four weeks went. Maybe I don't even know where the last three or four years went. Because time and our schedules and our busyness grip us and put us in a vice. And we say, I can't have time for God. Or I'm just too tired at the end of the day to to know what it looks like to have a relationship with my Savior. By the time the day is over, there's nothing left for God. Our time governs how we manage the daily tasks of life. That we forget, just honestly, what it looks like to be in relationship with our Savior. The one who's given us this grace. The one who took on flesh. The one who lived and died and rose again from the dead for us. But maybe it's not power or control or time. Maybe for some of us, we just want to be comfortable. We want a comfortable life for ourselves, for our families, and so we sacrifice everything for that. We do everything within our power just to be comfortable. And we do indeed even sacrifice relationships because we're so consumed with the American dream and this quest for comfortability and easiness. Our personal comfort then dominates our family lives too, doesn't it? When we're asked for help, We get frustrated and irritated. When we're asked to serve, we are tired and 
worn out. These things that I've just mentioned are the ungodliness that Paul talks about. The worldly passions that Paul is instructing Titus and his church to deny. The world tells us that power and control are are necessary for success. The world tells us that time and money is ours to control. The world tells us over over and again that personal comfort is success. That's our chief end. This text tells us that we are to renounce that idea and seek after God. Take up your cross and follow me. So what is the alternative? The second part of verse 12, if you were to look at that again, tells us exactly what the alternative is. We are to do something. We are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We say, what does that mean, Paul? Great, that doesn't help a whole lot. I have no idea what a self-controlled, upright, or godly life is, let alone how to do it. So let's take a look for just a second on what that looks to live this way. For the answer, we don't have to go very far from this text. As a matter of fact, we just have to look up in the letter just a little bit. If you allow me, I'm going to read just a a few verses here of of Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, and the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God, our Savior. We don't have time to play out every single verse and every single word of what, the, what that is, but this is a summary statement of what this then looks like to live godly and upright lives. In summary, really what it is, it's, it's not to be about power or control. It's not to be about comfort. It's not to be about striving for our own needs to be met. The summary of those 10 verses is submit, serve, love other people. This is what it means to be upright and godly. Why do we know that? Because this is what Jesus has done for us. He left heaven and he took on flesh to serve and to love me and you. He left heaven to take on flesh to die, to take on sin, to take on my brokenness, to take on death and hell. This is what grace is. This is what Paul is saying. This grace has come. So we too live that way. We live in service. We live in love. We live in humility towards one another. All of these things that are listed here are not something that we can put off, Paul says to Titus. These are not additions to the Christian life. It's it's not as if I'm a Christian and then maybe I'll consider being a humble servant or I'm a Christian and maybe I'll consider living my life this way. No, to be a Christian means to serve and to love and to be humble. This is what Paul is saying. But we have a tendency to say, I will live this way when it's convenient or easy or when life slows down a little bit. 
I'm going to slow down myself for just a second here. I'm going to put the car in park. I'm going to press a little button on the, call, on, on the car's dashboard that has a triangle and the lights then flash. What I've just said for the fast, past few minutes sounds like a to-do list. It is. It is. But let's just get that out of the way. These are things that God expects us to do. He expects us to do these kind of things. He commands us to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as as ourselves. This is a to-do list. These are the things that define who we are as Christians who have received grace. And so then with this to-do list, we need to understand and remember, how did we get here? How did we get to this point in this letter? We got here by God's grace. Grace allows us then to respond with humility and service. Grace gives us the ability to live this kind of life, the one where we put others before ourselves, to deny and to renounce the worldly passions. This grace then is what's training us, training us to live this way, And remember that training is a practice. It's an action. We won't get it right the first time. We just won't. I won't. You won't. But grace keeps coming back. Grace keeps showing up. Grace is what allows us to turn in response, in love and in service. Grace is what allows us to deny the worldly passions and to do the things he requires of us. The second part of what Paul is saying that we are to do in answering the question, what now, is not only action, but anticipation. The response of action is is not only for the present day, but it's also for the future. Verse 13 tells us that we are to to wait for the coming of our blessed Savior. What's a great sentence. So not only are we to respond in action, but now we're to respond in anticipation. Just like we've been anticipating yesterday, for some of us for weeks and weeks, some of us for months. We're looking forward to the day that our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, will return in glory. For we saw in this season that Jesus took on flesh and was born in a manger. Yahweh, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, became a man. And he loves us. And he says to us, I will come back. And so this is what we wait for. This is what we hope for. But there is this already and not yet tension that exists, right? There's this idea that salvation has occurred. It's been accomplished. We have this responsibility. But not everything is the way it's supposed to be quite yet. We eagerly await the appearing of grace once again, don't we? We are to anticipate our redemption and we anticipate our reward. In verses 13 and 14, we begin to see that Paul is, is painting a picture for us. Painting a picture for us of why grace appeared in the first place and why grace will appear again. Paul tells, us, Paul tells Titus, anticipate the day when Jesus returns. And it must be said in verse 13 that Paul is explicitly referring to Jesus as both God and man. Our Savior. He's saying that this baby 
that we just celebrated in the flesh will return in the flesh to take you home. Jesus, this God-man, this Savior is coming back. This is in direct opposition to a lot of what was being talked about in, in, in the time of this letter was being written. For this is indeed an extreme claim that God and this boy are one and the same. Yet this is the reality of what we have to anticipate. This is the claim upon which we stake our hope. We have this grace and our hope, not the fingers crossed hope, but the assurance of hope that grace will return again and redeem us. Verse 14 tells us that there's a twofold purpose for his return, to redeem his people, but also to give us a reward. Friends, this is why we're to respond in anticipation. That there is a day when we will no longer have to deny the worldly passions and renounce the ungodliness because there's coming a time when all of those things will be for naught. When the grace of the Lord Jesus returns in glory to remove those things in our lives. This is indeed something to anticipate, right? Something to look forward to. Something to anticipate with a deep and guttural longing. There should be, I think, I hope, a part of you, maybe even like a pit in your stomach, that knows there's something missing and yearns, yearns for that grace to come again. This then is our hope, that Jesus will return and we will witness the great glory that he brings with him and he will restore, he will redeem his creation to the way it's supposed to be. But he doesn't stop at redemption. There's more to the story than just Jesus coming back. It gets better than that. You see in verse 14 how it gets better? Not only does he redeem us and remove the sin in the world and restore his creation and our bodies, but he gives us something and he calls us something. Do you see that? What is that something? He calls us his people, his possession. The joy of heaven is that we will be in relationship with Jesus forever. We will be his people for eternity. Our reward isn't just heaven and how great heaven's going to be. Our redemption is not just heaven and, and, and redeemed and glorified bodies. Our reward is heaven and Jesus as our friend, as our God and our Savior, that we will have this person in the flesh and he is with us. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow, no more worldly passions. There will be no more ungodliness. Verse 14 tells us that we will be purified and we will no longer struggle to do good works, but we will be zealous for good works. And this reward then is that we have this Jesus in the flesh for all of eternity. That we are purified. Purified for service and kindness and goodness to each other. To be part of what is to come. To be part of Jesus. We will have each other. And we will have Jesus Friends, this is a wonderful reward. And that is something that we should anticipate. 
And that is something that we wait for. And that is something that is going to happen. Now what? Friends, we look forward to the return of Christ. Because he says he will. He told us he would take on the form, he would take on flesh in the form of a baby in Bethlehem in a manger to Mary and Joseph. And he tells us that he will return. What do we do now? We long for the day of Christ's return. And until that time, may we love him with our heart, with our soul, with all that we are, and our neighbor as ourself. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks that you've given us grace. They've given us yourself. And so, Lord, cause us to yearn for your return. So we pray, Lord, and we do long. Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. Come today. But, Lord, give us faith to trust that you will return when your will is completed. And so, Lord, be near to us. Please don't ever leave us. Please don't ever forsake us. Be our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.